My fellow plebs, River is setting a new standard in Bitcoin. At river.com, you'll pay zero fees when you dollar cost average. Truly the best way to build your Bitcoin wallet. All Bitcoin at River is held in secure cold storage with 100% full reserves. There's no need to wonder what's happening behind the scenes. Your Bitcoin is your Bitcoin to withdraw at any time. Additionally, River lets you make Bitcoin payments via the Lightning Network, offers a Lightning integration for developers, and allows you to mine Bitcoin directly to your River account. River has a level of service that is unheard of in this industry, including phone support, private client advisors, and the ability to designate beneficiaries to inherit your Bitcoin wealth. River has become the premium name in Bitcoin that anyone can easily access. Sure, you have a place to buy Bitcoin, but have you tried River? See and feel the difference at river.com and the River iOS app, the preferred partner of Bitcoin Magazine. My fellow plebs, today's podcast is also brought to you by Moon Mortgage. As the world moves increasingly towards the mainstream adoption of Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage makes it possible to materialize your assets into real estate. Through the collateralization of mortgages with Bitcoin and other digital assets, Moon Mortgage will be launching lending solutions to allow investors to easily leverage their assets to purchase investments in owner-occupied property. Moon Mortgage's crypto mortgage will be launching soon for home buyers in Texas, Florida, and Colorado, and will also be open to investors in most states across the U.S. for investment properties. Welcome to the future of mortgages. Visit moonmortgage.com today to register and learn more. Moon Mortgage Residential is registered with the NMLS under number 235334. Natalie Smolensky published a white paper on central bank digital currencies titled Why the United States Should Reject a Central Bank Digital Currency. She talked a lot about a rising China, how they're weaponizing and using their central bank digital currency as a tool for digital surveillance, and ultimately how there are very few good use cases for a central bank digital currency in the United States, how it is very likely that the negative characteristics of a central bank digital currency would be weaponized to create a, a form of surveillance capitalism in the United States. And ultimately, very clearly and cogently make, makes the argument that uh, central bank digital currencies present a number of massive risks, not just from a cybersecurity perspective or national security perspective, but also just for our personal liberties. And so all, all this is to say, Natalie, once she released her white paper, we conducted a congressional briefing. We put this out, sent it to some three-letter agencies. Like we, we sent this all over D.C., and turns out someone from the IMF actually read her paper and um, liked her paper so much that they were putting together a debate on central bank digital currencies with Jay Christian Carlo, who's the former CFTC chairman. And when they're putting together a debate on CBDCs, they invited Natalie to speak. So this debate is actually like just getting started. I believe David is on our BPI account and we'll be having the audio in here. And then we're going to have a little bit of commentary on the debate. So I will shut up, David, if you want to get this going for us, then let's get ready for a really great debate. Public charity dedicated to original research and education about Bitcoin and political economy. She's also a senior fellow for the Bitcoin Policy Institute, where she writes and speaks extensively about the dangers of central bank digital currencies. She has an SAS startup. She's a SAS startup founder and currently leads business development at Highland, a U.S. leading content service provider. And she writes and speaks about identity, technology, and government. 
So without further ado, I would just pass the baton to Chris, who has a wonderful presentation, is going to share his slides. And in there, I think there's everything you need to know about what's going on, both private crypto and public crypto, as well as some very interesting insights of what's going on with this FTX scandal. So buckle up, Chris, the mic is yours. Thank you. Thank you, Nicolette. And, and can you see my screen? Has it come up on for viewing? Yes. Okay, good. So thank you, Nicolette, and thank you everyone for this opportunity to, to be with you today. I'm so pleased you referenced FTX as a starting point. I think it's something of an 800-pound gorilla in the room, and I think we, we, need to, we cannot ignore it in any presentation. I don't intend to ignore it today. I'm, I'm actually speaking next week in Miami at the Managed Funds Association Conference, and I got a call yesterday morning from the organizer, and the organizer said, look, we, we, we'd like to change the title of your remarks. And I said, okay. It, I think the, re the remarks were entitled something like the future of, of crypto and, and central bank digital currency, rather bland title. And so I said, what do you want to change it to? And he said, we're going to change it to crypto. What the hell happened? Uh, I said, you know what? That's probably the perfect title because I think a lot of people are wondering that themselves. When I, when I speak to audiences about crypto, I, sometimes in, in a live audience, I'll often ask for a show of hands when people think of crypto, how do they think of it? And, and sort of the five most common uh, responses I get, why is this not popping up here? Oh, there it is. Is a first one is a new highly speculative tradable asset class, a faster and more efficient means of payment, digital gold in the case of Bitcoin. Some people think of that because of its program scarcity. A scammed and a fraud naive investors is certainly one that always comes up and Perhaps in the case of FTX is one that will come up frequently still. And then lastly, all of the above. Now, those are probably some of the most common. And if you read and spend any time reading the papers in the last few months in the fall of FTX, probably all of these categories are front of mind for most of, most of the public. But what I want to ask you to do is actually think about it in a different way. Those are certainly all true. But the way I think about crypto and the way I have been thinking about it for almost a decade now is a series of algorithmic protocols that operate on digital networks to record and confirm the holding and transfer of things of value, including money itself. And as I want to show you today, that's a pretty powerful, if not an awesomely powerful concept. In fact, a recent research report from Bank of America that came out this week said that digital assets could be the most important transformation of financial services in the history of financial services. I don't know if that's true, but I do want to make the point to you that crypto is a lot more than just some speculative new investment asset class. It really is a new architecture of, of finance, a new architecture of where value is, who holds value, who transfers value to whom. And by value, I'm talking about everything from automobile titles to votes in election to ultimately money itself. So I'm going to give you just a quick background on myself because I, it, it's important to know how I got here and, and, and how I view this. So uh, I spent my first 16 years as a practicing lawyer in New York and London. And in the year 2000, I teamed up with a group of entrepreneurs to take a firm called GFI Group that was a small, what they call, interdealer broker 
to actually build one of the largest global networks for trading over-the-counter swaps. And we took that company public in 2005. And by 2008, we had become the world's largest trading platform for a type of over-the-counter swap called a credit default swap. Now, we were, not a, we were not a trading house. We didn't trade swaps. We were merely the platform on which they traded. I've often explained to people, we were the exchange for instruments that didn't trade on the exchange. And as I said, we, we probably had about 80% market share in the trading of credit default swaps. So we were truly at the eye of the storm in 2008 during the financial crisis when the, the prospect of credit default swaps not failing, the prospect of credit default, swaps, credit default swaps working, and therefore the, the major money center banks of the world calling in their swap protection against the failure of each other could cause a global financial crisis, led many questions. And I remember a few days before the fall of Lehman Brothers in September 2008, getting a call from a senior official at the New York Federal Reserve and the conversation went along the following lines. And that is, hi, I'm so-and-so. Do you remember we met at a cocktail reception at the New York Fed a few months ago? Can you remind me what you guys do again? And I said, well, of course, we're with the exchange where credit default swaps trade over the counter. And he said, right. And he said, so what do you see in the market? And I said, well, today, for example, credit protection at Lehman Brothers began at 500 basis points over treasury. Now it's closer to 600. Basically, they're a dead man walking. And he said, that's interesting. And what are you seeing in other names like Morgan Stanley and JP Morgan? And I went through how the spreads were gapping out. And he said, that's absolutely fascinating. So what you're saying is that you're kind of seeing a barometer on the health of these major institutions. And I said, yes. And he said, I'd like you to swing by the bank and, and, and explain this to some of my colleagues. And I said, I'd be happy to. I said, I just don't know when I'll get off the trading floor. It's absolute pandemonium here, maybe by 9, 10 o'clock tonight. And he said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I, I can't do that. I've got a kid's soccer game tonight. Tomorrow's pretty busy. Why don't we look in the diary and look at a date maybe in the middle of October? Well, as we all know, it was all over by then. Lehman Brothers fell a few days later. They were effectively dead 48 hours before they fell. And what struck me, and this is the point of the story, was that regulators had no better way of knowing the credit health of some of the most important financial institutions than calling around to a, a, an intermediary like mine and asking where were credit spreads and can you even get credit protection against certain names. And over the next few years, that, in, that incident reverberated in my mind. And so when I started reading about blockchain technology, early in the next decade, I thought, oh my goodness, if all of the credit default exposure of banks had been recorded not on fax papers circulated around Wall Street and around the globe, but had actually been on a blockchain, then policymakers would have known in real time the exposure of, of firms. At, at, in 2008, it was believed that the gross notional outstanding amount of, of exposure against Lehman Brothers, were it to fail, was $400 billion. And basically, they extrapolated that and said, well, if, if exposure to Lehman Brothers is $400 billion, then exposure to, say, Morgan Stanley must be $800 billion, and exposure to J.P. Morgan must be $1.2 trillion. Therefore, let's come up with a TARP program that floods these banks' balance sheets with liquidity. 
in case they fail. But we now know, in part by work done by the chief economist of the CFTC, that the net exposure, not the gross exposure, but when you net down all of those swaps protection written against Lehman Brothers, was not 400 billion, it was less than 9 billion. And in 2008, we knew the exposure was less than 9 billion because all those swaps were on one blockchain. Then our policy responses to the financial crisis could have been very different than the TARP program. For one thing, we could have let Lehman Brothers go bust. We knew it, we would have known it wouldn't have brought down the world financial, it wouldn't cause the world financial crisis. Or Treasury could have written a check and bailed them out. But those options were not available to us simply because in the fog of war, we didn't have the data. We didn't have the data because technologically, it was a series of separate bank balance sheets. There was no, there was no distributed ledger. And so I started following this. And when I got a call from the Obama administration in 2013, asking me to serve at the CFTC, this was something that was very much on my mind. I took my seat in 2014, and I went there to complete the reforms to the swaps market that were in the United States Dodd-Frank bill and a lot of global legislation. But while I was there, I continued to focus on this notion of blockchain. And as I recount in my book, A Crypto Dad, The Fight for the Future of Money, by 2015, I've really been studying Bitcoin. And the first thing I did upon becoming chairman in January of 2017 is created something called Lab CFTC. And I charged it to understand cryptocurrency and the underlying blockchain technology. I can't figure out why this is not moving forward here. You have like a little, you select something different from the. This is the strangest thing. It worked when we did it before. It did. About the arrows. Oh. I'm sorry, everybody. I can't figure out. Let's see what we got here. Does that do anything? No. First, maybe stop sharing and share again. I might have to do that. So I apologize. I'm going to. As you do that, there was a question in the chat saying this is not a, a blockchain lack of, a lack of technology is more of an issue of imperfect disclosure to the regulator. Well, not really, because it was impossible to know net figures without a blockchain. There was no way for one in institution to confirm how many times that credit exposure that was sold on that institution was, was rehedged in other places. The blockchain would provide that netting down of positions. That's why they, the federal regulators were only looking at gross positions. But I'm, I'm just gonna carry on, but I'll, I do wanna come back to that later. During the course of the first few years I was at the CFTC, the value of, blockchain, of Bitcoin grew tremendously. And in 2017, we were approached by two large of our exchanges, Chicago Mercantile Exchange, Chicago Board Option Exchange, about licensing Bitcoin futures. And there was a lot of pressure on us at the CFTC, and me in particular, 
to block the launch of Bitcoin futures. And yet, a couple of things. One is, I felt, in fact, the presence of a futures market would actually moderate some of the bubble that was growing in Bitcoin prices. But more importantly, philosophically, I felt it's not for regulators, at least in the American system, to approve or disapprove what investors can invest in. It was for us to make sure that if investors wish to invest in an asset class, to put a regulatory regime around it that provided transparency, orderliness, freedom from fraud and manipulation. And so that's what we did at the CFTC. We repurposed our rule set to allow for the emergence of a Bitcoin futures market. And five years later, here we are in 2023, the only thing that hasn't failed virtually in crypto, not the only thing, but one of the things that hasn't, is that five-year now operating Bitcoin futures market that we began at the CFTC in 2017. In fact, it was the first truly fully regulated market for any form of crypto. And five years later, that market is liquid, it's transparent, and it's operating quite well. Nevertheless, right after licensing and greenlighting the launch of Bitcoin futures, I was called before the Senate Banking Committee. And in February 2018, I was questioned by the committee considerably on that decision. And I made the case that in a free market, it's vitally important that that regulators not see their mission to pick and choose what products are available, but to make sure they operate in a well-regulated, well-functioning system. And that's what we did. And it was in the course of that hearing, which I recount in my book, that I was awarded the nickname Crypto Dad. Now, why do I, why do I say that crypto is a new architecture? Well, let me just take you on a brief historical journey. I'm going to do it twice in these remarks. The first one I want to talk about historical journey through the 20th century. One of the most important inventions of the 20th century was the semiconductor. The semiconductor allowed us to take large, giant mainframe computers out of college campuses and military institutions and reduce them to personal computers and populate the globe with tens of billions of them. But as important as that hardware development is, I would argue that it was actually the software development of key protocols like TCP IP and HTTP that allowed those computers to talk to each other that was a far more fundamental transformation. It transformed all manner of information and, quite frankly, social activity from the way we listen to music to the way we see video to the way we conduct retail shopping, the way we conduct local transportation, travel and leisure, video and photography, communications. Just take communications, for example. Historically, when I was a young man and would travel abroad and would want to speak to my parents, I'd call home on a Sunday, and my mother would always begin the conversation with saying, you've got five minutes because this is costing us an arm and a leg. Now, not only students traveling abroad, but whole populations of immigrants around the world are able to speak to their loved ones 24-7, 365, at virtually no cost. And why is that? Because they've moved those communications off the proprietary rails owned by Bell Telephone and Ma Bell and Alcatel and British Tel, and they've moved them onto the internet. A, a telecommunications breakthrough based upon internet-based communications to have enormous social implications. And of course, social networking with Facebook and LinkedIn and business meetings like the one we're doing right now with Zoom and Teams. That's called the first wave of the internet and internet of information. We've also seen a second wave of, internet, of, of the internet called the internet of things. 
devices talking to devices, devices getting every smaller because of Moore's law, allowing for every smaller processing capability. But once again, it's the key protocols like Wi-Fi and Bluetooth that have allowed these devices to bring that social change brought about by that second wave. Well, many argue we're now in a third wave of the internet. This time it's not a, an internet of things or value, but an inter, or of, of communications, but an internet of value. The same concept, can we move value out of proprietary systems and use it to communicate on the internet? Well, the breakthrough in this internet of value was that famous paper written by he, she, or they, Satoshi Nakamoto, that proposed with the right protocol, we could actually move value onto the internet rather than onto, uh, rather than on proprietary balance sheets. And those key protocols today, no different than HTML, are BTC, Bitcoin, ETF for, for, for Ethereum, Solana, USDC. When I think about crypto, I think about it in terms of key protocols that allow for value to be established on internets. So again, what is crypto? It is using distributed ledger technology and cryptography to record ownership and transfer of value on the internet rather than as assets and liabilities on proprietary balance sheets of the world's roughly 7,000 commercial financial institutions. And this notion that you can establish where value is and who's transferring value to whom on the internet rather than as we've done for the last 400 years on, on the balance sheets of proprietary institutions is launched already in its first decade all kinds of products and, and technologies from cryptocurrencies to stable coins to what they call DAOs, computing protocols, decentralized finance, non-fungible tokens. And we're only in the early stages of this. Where this will lead is like knowing back in, 20, in, 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 in 1990 that somehow this notion of computers talking to each other would lead to Uber or FaceTime. We didn't know it then and we don't know exactly where, but I can tell you we're only in the early stages and it could be remarkable. So what has been the public sector response to what's effectively been a private sector innovation? Well, it started with cautious indifference. Let's see if I get rid of this here. Sorry about that. A combination of cautious indifference to regulatory accommodation. If you look at what central banks have done in the area of central bank digital currency, which I'll turn to in a minute, and some market regulators like ourselves at the CFTC and others, and to now we're leading to legislation. But we still are also seeing a fair amount of what I call regulatory hostility. Here in the United States, a legislative process is underway, and I'm optimistic that this current session of Congress, this two-year session, we will see some combination of both targeted and comprehensive legislation. I don't want to go into it because I do want to turn back to the FDX fiasco. Hey, plebs. Today's podcast is brought to you by Crowd Health. Open enrollment is upon us. What if you didn't have to pay healthcare premiums anymore? What if you could invest in Bitcoin instead? With CrowdHealth, you can put aside money for health expenses in your own account and even hold a large part of it in Bitcoin. If Bitcoin goes up, you get the upside, not the big insurance companies. Pay one low monthly total to fund an account that is yours. Choose your doctors and hold 75% of the funds in Bitcoin. 
If a large expense comes up, CrowdHealth will crowdfund the bill for you to pay quickly. Stop supporting the broken health insurance system with your hard-earned capital. Go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG and experience freedom from health insurance by utilizing Bitcoin right now through the end of the year. You can get your first six months for just $99 per month. Don't get stuck in a bad insurance plan again. Instead, go to CrowdHealthBTC.com and use code BTCMAG to sign up. That's CrowdHealthBTC.com, promo code BTCMAG. CrowdHealth is not health insurance. It is a totally different way of paying for healthcare. Terms and conditions may apply. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Plebs, if you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com. The problem with FTX, well, there's many problems, but one of the key problems is it combined two things that, or three things that should never be done together. And that is proprietary trading with trade execution with brokerage activities. With in my background, having run a trading platform on Wall Street, one never engages in trading if you're, if you're running a platform. You, you either do execution or you trade. You can be a hedge fund or you can be a trading platform, but you can't be both. It operated in an absence of financial regulation in, in many jurisdictions abroad, an absence of transparency, rampant com conflicts of interest. And if I were to use a, historic, a series of historic analogies, I would say it's a combination of Madoff, Nick Leeson, and Enron. Madoff in that he used this fear of missing out, the shiny new object of crypto to drive people in, with Nick Leeson's having traded himself into a bad position and believing with more leverage he could trade out only to make the whole worse, and Enron, that temptation to drop into client accounts. I might even say MF Global. But at the heart, this was an old-fashioned crime, appropriating the promise of a transparent, decentralized, decentralized internet with an opaque, conflicted, and centralized platform. And yet, FTX will have continuing political and social effects. Another analogy I would give is 19th century railroad development. One needs to distinguish the fraudulent sales of early railroad shares, which was rampant, with the railroad as a technology and how it fundamentally transformed the United States economy by taking a series of regional economies and wheel. them together into a national economy that was then able to emerge as the world's largest economy. You have to separate the, the, the wildcat sales of those railroad shares from the fundamental underlying technology and the change it brought. So this current crypto winter, why are we there? Well, I think this promise and the valuation of internet-based value transfer got ahead of the end of QE and the beginning of a new quantitative tightening global credit cycle. Basically, there was too much money floating around, and ventures like this were too easily done. 
We also got ahead of the state of development of the underlying infrastructure. And I would include in that infrastructure legacy financial systems and, re and legacy regulatory networks. I would also include, and this, is, and this is something I mentioned in my congressional testimony, we really do have probably the biggest generation gap since the 1960s. Now, I grew up in a period of time when there was something called the generation gap where young people and their older generation just fundamentally disagreed on things like civil rights and here in the United States, the Vietnam War. Well, I think we're in as big of a generation gap today, but it's about technology. There's a generational status quo bias to the financial system as it exists today. In the minds of many older generation people, branch banking is fine. Three-day settlement is fine. Paper checks are fine. But for young people, they just don't get that at all. They, they are in a different place. And that young people do not understand why it costs so much money to move money around the globe. They don't understand three-day settlement cycles. They don't understand why value has to be stored in a bank institution as opposed to something more accessible in terms of the internet. And finally, I think we had kids and crooks playing with too much money without proper adult supervision. Another analogy I would give to where we are now is the 2000.com bust. Now, the failure of Pets.com in 2000 was not because consumers did not want to purchase pet supplies online. It was because they didn't want to do so using dial-up modems and waiting two to three weeks for delivery and investing in those companies at high valuations. When Pets.com crashed, there was about 361 million users of e-commerce around the globe. And notwithstanding its crash, and remember, there were headlines then saying e-commerce is over. Dot-com bust, it's not coming back. And yet by 2010, there were close to 2 billion users of e-commerce. And today, e-commerce is ubiquitous with over 5 billion users around the globe. So what's happening today? Well, we're seeing a flight to quality. Shift is underway for crypto speculation. What up, what up, dog? Payments and investment. And we've read the headlines about BNY Mellon and NASDAQ and Fidelity and BlackRock and State Street all moving into this area. And you can search right up to yesterday, and none of them have said, as a result of FTX, we're backing out. We're not going to go forward with our major investments. Okay. So with all of this going on, it's led to enormous interest in digital assets and crypto by finance ministries and central bankers as a means of payment, as a store of value, as a unit of account, and an opportunity for more effective regulation. The public sector's response is largely focused on central bank digital currency. And what is that? Well, it's digital currency issued by a central bank, bank backed by the full faith and credit of a sovereign government that trades at par to paper money. And if you look around the globe today and the Atlantic Council does a periodic updating, keeping statistics, over 100 of the world's central banks are now engaged in research or experimentation toward developing CBDC. 50 of them are in advanced stages of exploration, including 19 of the G20. Europe has said they will launch a, Euro, a digital euro by 2025. The Biden administration has said that work on a, central, a U.S. central bank digital currency is urgent. And as many know, China has already placed digital, their ECNY, their digital yuan, in over 250 million digital wallets. So I just want to distinguish central bank digital currency and make, explain to you why, in fact, it's not as odd as it sounds. So 
if we think about history of money from the dawn of civilization to roughly 400 years ago, the only form of money was basically tokenized money, whether it was a, a, a metal coin or a cow or a shell or a bead or the dollars or pound notes we use today with tokens require only the verification of the token itself, not of personal identity. And as a result, tokens are fast, cheap, and very inclusive. The one shortcoming, however, of tokens is that they are localized. That cow, it's hard to take that to the next village or the next country. That dollar bill will work in New York, but it won't work in Paris. So society came up with a different system. Not very long ago, about 400 years ago, the Bank of Amsterdam said, you know what, if you're, if you're leaving Amsterdam to trade in Venice, Put your, put your guilders in the basement of our bank and we'll give you a bank note. And you can take that down to Venice and, and, and get credit from a local bank down there because they're going to trust our credit, the Bank of Amsterdam, not necessarily yours. And so they issued bank notes and it allowed for safer and more convenient movement of value around the globe. Today, 90% of the money in circulation are bank notes and it financed the age of discovery. Now, Bank money exists as assets and liabilities of roughly 7,000 banks around the world. But they have a different system. They don't require verification of the thing itself. They require verification of the account holders. Basically, for every transaction, the identity of the counterparty needs to be established in order to establish where they bank and that there's enough money in their bank to settle the transaction. The shortcoming of bank money is that it's slow because people need to do all that verification. It's expensive because they, they need to be paid to do that verification. And it's exclusive. And perhaps that's the worst shortcoming of all. With, to, have, to be part of financial inclusion today, one needs to have sufficient credentialed identity to be part of it. And yet in a world of eight plus billion people, a billion and a half for, for, for a variety of reasons, don't have sufficient credentialed identity or don't wish to obtain it to be able to include it in this system. So what new technology is available to make value less local and more global than under the token money system, to make access to and transfer of value faster, cheaper, and more inclusive than the current bank money system, and to enable value, maybe for the first time in human history, to move efficiently across both space and maybe even time with programmability? Well, it's central bank digital currency. And in my book, I write about what I think are the seven factors driving central bank interest in central bank digital currency. And I don't want to go through them now and take too much time other than to say it's data capture, it's infrastructure upgrade, it's financial inclusion, precision monetary and social policy, the rise in the competition of stable coins, it's geopolitical influence, and then it's something I call karma. Money has always carried with it values. And I spent a year with the Hoover Institute on a study of China's ECNY. And from it, I've concluded that because of the surveillance features that will be built into the ECNY, or are built into the ECNY, there will be many jurisdictions around the world that will want that technology. And they'll either use it directly as part of China's Belt and Road Initiative, or they'll use it as a white label version for their own currency in order to have that surveillance capability. And I think designing a U.S. central bank digital currency or any digital currency of the world's democracies 
presents an opportunity to move away from surveillance, move away from censorship of the use of money to something I call freedom coin. And I have a paper coming out next week in the American Enterprise Institute that it's going to dive into this issue of surveillance coin versus freedom coin more directly. So what about a digital dollar? Well, in January 2020, I founded something called the Digital Dollar Project, calling on the Federal Reserve to advance its exploration of a U.S. digital dollar. And in March of last year, the Biden executive order called research and development of a digital dollar of the highest urgency. And last summer, Chairman Powell said that a digital dollar could help maintain the dollar's international standing. We, we at the Digital Dollar Project have moved from, from advocating U.S. taking a leadership role in the development of central bank digital currency to actually working with participants in various industries to explore how a central bank digital currency impacts or benefits different markets. And recently, we announced the very first in human history pilot to test the U.S. central bank digital currency and the first pilot in history of any central bank digital digital currency of any denomination that was entirely private sector led, not initiated by a central bank. And this pilot was with the Depository Trust Clearing Corporation to see how a CBDC would assist in what they call atomic settlement and clearing of securities. That is transaction by transaction rather than batch transactions at the end of a day or two days or three days. And that's just one of nine pilots that we'll be doing looking at a range of CBDC uses across from wholesale use all the way to retail use. Earlier this week, the Digital Dollar Project released an updated version of our white paper called Exploring a U.S. CBDC with a series of recommendations for U.S. leadership in global CBDC development. So in conclusion, what's to come? Well, I believe it's naive to think that the internet will not do to finance and money what it has already done to other human activities, increase efficiency, lower cost, increase inclusion, and overturn traditional market structures. To think that somehow finance and banking and money are immune from what the internet has done to every other social activity, I think is, is, is naive. And as a pre-internet generation of policymakers gives way to a generation that grew up in a networked world that understand digital networks intuitively, this internet of value will be second nature to them. And this internet of value has already started and will continue despite the FTX scandal and its reverberations. And how to prepare for this? Well, I think we need to anticipate the direction of innovations toward an internet-based architecture of value. We all need to understand crypto as software. Now, it also may serve a capital formation function as a security or a commodity or currencies. Software can do many things. And to the extent it serves as a security, it's, it's subject to securities regulation. To the extent it serves as a commodity, it should become subject to proper commodities regulation as we did at the CFTC. And in all its other forms, it should be subject to appropriate regulation. But to do that, those regulatory frameworks in many cases were written a long time ago in an analog and physical world. The regulatory frameworks here in the United States go back to the 1930s. And the only way in, until our Congress and other legislatures come up with bespoke legislation, we need to repurpose those regulatory frameworks to function with this new digital architecture. And I think we all need to help our policymakers understand this innovation, develop well-suited legal and regulatory frameworks for the future of, of digital money. And finally, I would say, let's not be afraid of this. I can't believe 
how much fear and loathing I'm reading in the paper about FTX, and yet it's the same old, same old. That doesn't make it okay. Not at all. But it's not the reason to somehow pause development. And, I'll, and one final thing. You go to any country in the world, in many of the developing countries, where the average age is under 30, they are adopting this as fast as complete be. They fully get this. The problem is our well-developed societies that have long had well-functioning analog-based financial systems that seem to be fearful about the direction of travel. I think we need to offset that fear with an openness to this. Now, we, we need to bring all that we've learned to bear. We need sound and solid and well-functioning regulatory frameworks. Nothing has changed the human tendency to, 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 to mistakes, in some cases, fraud and failure. We need adult supervision. But what we don't need is fear. We need openness. With that, I'm delighted to let my colleagues speak and, and take some questions if we can. Thank you very much. Thanks, Chris. This was extremely clear and insightful, and I learned a lot. I have a few questions myself, but I think the best thing to do is to pass the mic to Tommaso, who has prepared a short discussion. you got 10 minutes, Tommaso. Go ahead. Thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, and Chris, I thoroughly enjoy your presentation, as I did your book, which I have here, Crypto Dad. I guess if you're the crypto dad, all of us working on this topic must be your children somehow. <laughs> so this all remains in the family. Chris has this unique perspective. Chris is somebody who gets excited just as much by being on a rooftop bar with his kids talking to entrepreneurs, the stories written in the book, as he does by being in the office of Jay Powell or in the BIS building in Basel talking about regulation. So this unique perspective of both an entrepreneur and a regulator makes this book very, very insightful, very special. It's also extremely well written. In, in my brief discussion, I wanted to go through some of the things that we're working on at the IMF and, and some of the things that I've been thinking about uh, personally and use that as a platform to ask a few questions to you, Chris. The first one is about the timing of regulation. Do you start to regulate early? or late while there is a significant innovation in the market. You speak about this in the book, and many of our member countries ask, actually ask us this question. In the book, you say that the US tends to regulate late and the Euro, Euro area tends to regulate early. And you take sides with the US. You believe that that allows for more innovation and more clarity also among regulators. And I wonder if that view has changed a little bit given the FTX debacle, which, of course, does happen. Fraud, criminal activity happens. It's more a function of the people involved rather than the technology, as you explained. Nevertheless, FTX has cast a very long shadow on the industry and may put the industry back by several months, if not a year. And I wonder if earlier regulation might have somehow avoided that. So has your thinking changed? Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. I, in, in my book, I, I kind of weigh the two different approaches, and, and, and I admit that there's a lot of drawbacks to, to economies that are late to regulate a given innovation. And, and I express some admiration for, I think, what's the tendency to want to be early with regulation, not late. I, I do think it perhaps enables catching 
some misbehavior before it gets out of hand or closing some gaps early. The, the downside, however, is that if you get the regulation out too early, I believe, it's my own view, but if you get the regulation out too early, then what innovators start doing now is innovating to, resolve, to, to address the regulatory concerns as opposed to innovating to solve commercial and marketplace needs. And I believe the, the advantage, and there's a lot of disadvantages in coming late with regulating. One of the disadvantages, you may allow others to set global standards. But the, I think the advantage, and I think one of the reasons why the United States has traditionally been a very innovative economy, is by regulating late, you allow entrepreneurs to, result, to address commercial needs, market needs, as opposed to regulatory needs. And ultimately, what drives economic growth is greater efficiencies in markets. And if, if entrepreneurs are making markets more efficient, then it's doing us a service. Now, at the same time, regulators need to, can't fall too far behind. They've got to catch up. We need to bring, a lot of our regulation is based upon sound human concepts. You know, what underlies all of our securities regulations, the millions of pages, are a few sound concepts. Transparency. Tell us what you're doing before you take our money. And if you tell us what you're doing, do that and don't do other things. Be truthful. And then a, a way to verify that, audits, et cetera, so that we know that what you've told us you are doing and there's an independent verification. It's, it's more complicated than that, but some of these sound principles. And so often with regulation, it's, a con it's, it's about filling gaps. It's about bringing these already established principles to a new area. Now, what I would say in the case of FTX the part that didn't fail was the part that was under CFTC supervision. So their derivatives, coin and Ethereum derivatives trading was under CFTC supervision. And that's the one part of the FTX empire that is currently for sale because there's value there because it didn't fail. The parts that failed were operating in jurisdictions where there was no regulation or in the one area in the US law spot Bitcoin trading that is not subject to either SEC or CFTC jurisdictions because of a gap in our law. And that's a gap that up for five years I've been advocating for Congress to fill that gap. And we Congress needs to get move forward and do it. And I'm optimistic it will happen this year. And that's a failure of the type you mentioned where the U.S. is too behind. We need to fill that gap. But where the law is in place, it has worked. And I think generally, the U.S. coming late to the day has furthered innovation, even if it's allowed for perhaps a few more spectacular scandals around the world here in the U.S. that maybe took, might have taken place elsewhere. Just, I think that since Natalie hasn't spoken yet, if Tommaso finishes and then we go to Natalie and then we have a few questions around the chat for Chris and we, so we give everybody a chance to talk because this is so passionate, I can see it, then we, we won't be able to hear entirely what Tommaso as to say, Natalie. So, Tomas, you have five minutes now to give us Thanks our very much. questions. Very much. I, I mean, I, I love the passion, and of course, maybe some of the questions will remain unanswered, Chris, and we will meet in New York to talk more about this or in D.C. when you're here. But I, I wanted to bring up a couple of additional points. One is perhaps a deeper point about FTX, and that is the role of intermediaries. So some people's understanding of crypto assets or the crypto world is that you don't need intermediaries. And, 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 of course, the failure of FTX has turned that onto its head 
and suggest that you still need intermediaries like FTA. And the problem comes from the intermediaries. So the world hasn't really changed. We're back to a world of intermediaries that need to be regulated. And I think this comes from a misunderstanding of what crypto is really about. I think you said it well in your remarks. There is no longer the need for an intermediary in settlement. Settlement can happen on the blockchain. But of course, there may be intermediaries that issue new forms of money, such as stablecoins, and you still need to trust those intermediaries. Those intermediaries still need to be regulated. And I, I suppose you would agree with that. So here's what, if, if I could, just for, it's a very important point. It's very important, actually, who, anybody who's interested in this area, if you haven't had a chance to read the Satoshi Nakamoto white paper, read it. It's only nine pages long. It's amazing how, in the common parlance, people ascribe to it things that it doesn't actually say. So I've heard people say that its fundamental premise is to move finance out of government regulation. It doesn't matter, men, mention government regulation at all. That's not one of its premises. It also doesn't say we'll do away with intermediaries. What it does say is that we'll move money from an, a bank account-based system to an internet-based system. And maybe on an internet-based system, we don't need the same degree of intermediaries. We don't need as many intermediaries. But in human history, there have always been intermediaries. I, I, I often tell a story. I was in a, a dentist's office. I picked up a, a magazine on the table while I was waiting. It was something called Archaeology Today. And there was a story about the blocks used to build the pyramids and that they were able to find some of the blocks that had inscribed into them markings. And they translated the markings. And the markings were the name of the brokers who brokered the blocks to the pharaohs to build the pyramids. There's been intermediaries on human, in human society since early ages. And I have a feeling there'll be intermediaries in human society to the end of time. And that is because once you have more than, say, a dozen actors in a given area, there becomes a dynamic where you want somebody to be a go-between, simply because you can't go to all 12 at the same time or in sequence without things moving. And brokers have a way of knowing that. So I'm not saying an, an internet future is an intermediary-less future, but the concept is, just as, quite frankly, the first wave of the internet didn't do away with intermediaries. We have Amazon, we have eBay, we have, we have intermediaries. But the notion is that the architecture would move away from a, 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 an architecture built on the balance sheets of commercial, proprietary commercial institutions to an architecture that's network-based, digital network-based. I think that's the fundamental architectural change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I quite agree with you. And I, this leads me to, to my next point, which is about tokenization. And you have this very nice discussion on moving of the value of tokenization, it's very convenient for us to meet on the town square and exchange a gold coin. I don't need to trust you. You don't need to trust me. As long as we trust the gold coin, you're happy. And by giving you the coin, I've settled the transaction. We can both be off. And the only problem is that we have to meet in the town square. And in today's world, that's difficult. Now, you suggest that tokenization solves that problem with digital tokens, we don't need to meet in the town square. Nevertheless, we can still settle transactions without knowing each other. Now, the problem with these types of bearer instruments is that they're typically anonymous. And there's the whole problem of anonymity. I mean, you, you speak in your book about some of the pitfalls of controlling information, but there's just as many pitfalls to anonymity. 
And of course, we know that this is this favors criminal behavior. It is not consistent with AML, anti-money laundering, and combating the financing of terrorist laws. So how do we get around it? How do we square the circle? I think it's still possible to be KYC'd, still possible for an intermediary to know who we are without us knowing each other and us being able to settle in this new way using blockchain technology. So yeah. I think you can square the circle with, with anonymity and still have tokenization. Yeah, so th this is such an important topic and, and one that I addressed in a lengthy paper that I'm publishing in the next week at the American Enterprise Institute, which I, which perhaps maybe we can put on the website once it's launched and, and, and readers interested. It's one that we can take a lot of time. But what I would say is we should look upon digital assets as an opportunity to revisit what we do right now, which is a system where enormous amounts of personal da data is transmitted to commercial and government entities without permission. Uh, every, every day we engage in e-commerce, our data is sucked out by commercial actors. There was an article the, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal yesterday about how much data of Americans' overseas transactions is taken by government agents without probable cause, without a subpoena, without a warrant, simply because they want the data. So we're, oh, wow. we're not in a good place today in terms of preserving privacy. And I believe that when we go not to, an, to a digital asset system that's anonymous, but one that's pseudonymous, where our identity can be preserved unless there's probable cause that we've done something wrong, and then it becomes uncovered. And, and what I would point to is the right way of getting at this is what we do in law enforcement every day, in, on highway law enforcement. In highway law enforcement, we don't do what we do in financial services, that is get everybody's information before they do a transaction in case they do something wrong. In highway law enforcement, we let people freely onto the highway, and then we use pattern recognition. Somebody's speeding, somebody's reckless driving, somebody's driving without their headlights on. Pattern recognition to identify whether there may be probable cause of something wrong, and then we go and inspect, and finally we get identification. It's an identity last as opposed to an identity first system. Unfortunately, what we do in financial services is we require credential identity even to engage in financial services. That's why we've got a billion and a half people that are, are excluded because this requirement of financial identity first in case you do something wrong. I think with a digital money system, with a digital token system, we can allow transaction activity to take place and, and, and regulators can do the same thing that Facebook and eBay does, that is monitor traffic, uh, apply pattern recognition. And we did some of this at the CFTC big data analysis, artificial intelligence, pattern recognition, to see patterns of behavior. If you see that there's 50 transactions this morning between my next door neighbor in New Jersey and, and some dodgy bank in Nigeria, that may be the problem, and that bank is itself been engaged in criminal activity, that may be the basis to un unmask that identity that's, and turn pseudonymity into identity. But not what we do today, which is just gobble up enormous amounts of data even for people that are innocent. And so I really think the digital revolution is a chance to rethink the direction we're heading in. And, and the dirty little secret is the United States and Europe are already heading more to a surveillance system in, in the analog financial system than we like to admit. And I think digital assets are a chance to be honest with ourselves that we really need to rethink that. It is not 
honestly, where we are today is not, does not do justice to the, the, the free society, democratic society that we like to think of ourselves. And I think digital assets are an opportunity to rethink that. I, I like that, Chris. I need to go to Natalie because we really want her to say something about CBDC. She's written extensively about it. And then we'll we'll talk more if we have a few minutes at the end, okay? So Natalie, I'm sorry, Tommaso, I'll get back to you at this time, but you at least you had a chance to say a few things. Natalie, go ahead. Thank you so much for having me. I'm going to share my presentation here. Can you let me know when, when you can see my slides? I can see it. We can okay. see them. Put them in full thing. If, yeah. Yes. All yeah. right. <clears throat> so I wanted to take a few minutes today to outline what I see as the major political economy issues raised by CBDCs. And I can summarize the broader trend here as a consolidation of bank and state. This is a consolidation of all levels of banking with state regulation and oversight. And I will end my presentation by explaining how COIN offers an, an alternative to this growing system of control. First, I want to start by cutting through some of the narrative around CBDCs. So this is a quote many here will be familiar with, President of the Minnesota Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari, who said last year, I keep asking anybody, anybody at the Fed or outside the Fed to explain to me what problem this meaning a CBDC is solving. And there have been a number of purported benefits presented as innovative that CBDCs offer that no other technology does. First is, is real-time settlement, the, the contention that our financial system is antiquated and slow, but it doesn't hold up to scrutiny because there are other non-CBDC implementations that already exist that offer the same benefit. For example, FedNow, which is being rolled out this year, and the Bitcoin Lightning Network as the non-state alternative. Second is the benefit of financial inclusion. The, the billion or so people around the world who don't have access to the existing banking system. But the, the, the obstacles to these people creating accounts with the banking system are precisely the identity verification requirements around banking, AML, KYC, and generally low income. They can't afford to pay to maintain minimum deposits or pay banking fees. And neither of these problems are problems that CBDCs will solve. In fact, they expand the orbit of identity verification requirements that is already in place. I've also heard some allude to CBDCs being a mechanism for wealth redistribution or increasing socioeconomic equality, and that is emphatically not the case. I mean, CBDCs are just another digital form of base money. They, there is no redistributive project implicit in any CBDC rollout anywhere in the world. What they do do well, though, is that they provide a, a system to accelerate the full surveillance of financial transactions. So ID verification for CBDC usage is a design requirement in every CBDC implementation. This is not something that, that regulators or private actors building and implementing CBDC architectures will, will skip. That, in fact, is a benefit. 
for the state that CBDCs offer. The, the ability to individually target monetary policy is another benefit of CBDCs. So they're fully programmable money, meaning that deposits and spend can be controlled at the individual level and even at the token level. This actually represents a full merger of fiscal policy, monetary policy, and policing. And that's the theme of the conversation coming, coming up here. Another big motivator for states in implementing CBDCs is capturing tax revenue from the quote-unquote informal economy. So those who are not included in the banking system transact primarily in physical cash. Many of those transactions are not currently taxed. And so by, in effect, replacing physical cash, which is what CBDCs will eventually do, and requiring that ID verification, states do intend to capture that additional tax revenue. And then finally, for the BRICS countries, the incentive to build a CBDC network is that they are able to create a alternative to the U.S.-dominated global financial system. And this has become much more urgent after the United States froze Afghanistan's and Russia's sovereign reserves over the past few years. It's made clear to sovereign actors that their FX reserves are not safe if they're not directly custodied, that money has become fully politicized. And so what is happening is that different political monetary systems are being built out in response to the political U.S.-dominated global monetary system. As, as Chairman Giancarlo mentioned, CBDCs are, are already very advanced in implementation in countries around the world. This process of developing and launching CBDCs is happening entirely outside of the democratic process and without feedback from the populations of any country in which they are being implemented. And where we have pilot projects of CBDCs in the field, for example, in China, Nigeria, the Bahamas, Eastern Caribbean, it's clear that the people don't want to use them. They see them as surveillance coins. They see them as attempts to corral people into the use of fiat currencies that many of them don't want to use. And so there is a coercive element to the implementation of CBDCs that is not being taken into account at all in these debates at the state level. And so I, I want to take a step back and CBDCs are just one symptom of a broader problem that I see is the growth of the surveillance state. This, this is a kind of momentum wherein the state grows, grows the amount of data that it collects on people with, with basically very little in the form of a countervailing push from civil society. And so we've seen, for example, that the United States Intelligence Agency network has grown dramatically. It now costs the taxpayer almost $90 billion a year. There are continuously new intelligence agencies added. This is just at the federal level. Most Americans have never heard of most of these agencies. And in fact, it's unclear really how many total federal agencies there are. There is no one authoritative source that spells out all of the U.S. federal agencies and their mandates. There are various sources depending on how agency is defined, and there is no standard definition of agency. Place the numbers at where from 
around 60 to over 400. And so how can we in fact understand or rein in abuses of the administrative state if we can't even document that state in its current state? Surveillance systems are poised only to cities across the world, and the United States is no exception, are, are implementing more stringent surveillance, surveillance practices. There's a lot of funding to do this. Some of the infrastructure bill funding is doing this, but then also municipal and state appropriations are doing this. This points to the broader trend that's been identified by some historians as surveillance capitalism. Surveillance capitalism is a accelerating surveillance economy in which both private actors and state actors stand to benefit from growing surveillance of the general population. In the case of the state, surveillance affords control, the, the ability to influence behavior at scale. In the case of the private sector, that type of behavioral influence affords profit. And so in the words of law scholar Andrew Guthrie Ferguson, what is different about the system of surveillance today from the type of surveillance that, say, is afforded law enforcement in the Constitution is its scope. And it is automated, it is accelerating, it is accurate, it accumulates data, it aggregates that data, and then actualizes that data. And of course, it is persistent, pervasive, and profitable. So this, this brings us to a discussion of AML-KYC, which was brought up in the conversation earlier. And my contention here is that AML-KYC is basically a global system of warrantless surveillance that has, in effect, made constitutional protections like the subpoena process irrelevant. And here I actually quote Chairman Giancarlo from your, your book. You correctly point out that Fourth Amendment privacy protections have been eroded considerably since the attacks of September 11, 2001. In fact, no account-based transactions are truly private because in every case they require personal identity as a prerequisite step. And this, of course, will be a, a core component of CBDC infrastructures. This is a quote from the U.S. Federal Reserve's report or white paper on CBDCs that was published in January of last year. So exactly one year ago, any CBDC intermediary would need to verify the identity of a person accessing CBDC, just as banks and other financial institutions currently verify the identities of their customers. So this, this brought to my mind a quote from Timothy May, one of the, the cypherpunks who wrote in the 1990s, that the four horsemen of the infocalypse or infocalypse will be will be used to justify doing away with privacy online. These are terrorists, pedophiles, drug dealers, and money launderers. And we're seeing that in action today. This is just a, a short list of US-based AML laws, starting with the 1970 Bank Secrecy Act. There's basically a new AML law every few. The 2001 Patriot Act was perhaps the most significant of these in recent memory. And we've also seen since 1989, the establishment of the Financial Action Task Force, which is a global network of financial police, FinCEN, and the US Treasury Office of Intelligence intelligence and analysis. The overall trends here are that reporting thresholds for financial transactions are being continually lowered. These government and para-government organizations are not subject to the data protection laws that commercial actors are. And so they maintain 
profiles on billions of people without any of the imperative to delete that data, to make citizens aware that that data is being collected, to modify that data if it's inaccurate. And then, of course, they all share information between one another. Um, One of the results commercially of AML laws is that anywhere between 30% and 65% of declined transactions globally are in fact legitimate. And so that results in up to $640 billion in lost revenue, not to mention the hassle that ordinary people have to go through to unblock cards and bank accounts that have been frozen due to some fraud algorithm being tricked. A question that is rarely asked is how effective is anti-money laundering legislation? In 2018, Ronald Pohl did a comprehensive study of the effectiveness of AML laws worldwide and came to the conclusion that less than 0.1% is the impact that AML laws actually have on criminal finances. Compliance costs, however, exceed those recovered criminal funds more than 100 times over, and banks, taxpayers, and ordinary citizens are penalized more than criminal enterprises. And so as with all surveillance, surveillance it's surveillance for those who lack the power to circumvent the surveillance. And this is a quote from the former director of Europol, Rob Wainwright, also from 2018. Um, Professional money wanderers, and we've identified 400 of the top, top level in Europe, are running billions of illegal drug and other criminal profits through the banking system with a 99% success rate. So again, we must ask, who are these laws for? This is a short history of U.S. government insistence on exceptional access, which is basically the, the, the requirement that encryption backdoors be put in services and products used by ordinary people. Obviously, the Snowden revelations put a lot of this into mainstream conversation, but it's important to note that none of the programs identified by Edward Snowden have actually been formally sunset as a result of the public outcry. All of this, whether it's secret NSA key provisioning services and recovery services, warrantless surveillance under Section 702 of FISA, PRISM, Upstream, all of these are ongoing programs and and not checked by really any democratic body. Most recently, the Treasury Department's Office of Intelligence Analysis was, um, was revealed to be basically illegally rifling through the private financial records of millions of U.S. citizens, which it was collecting illegally from FinCEN. The NSA was also accessing that data illegally. There was a brief outcry about this, but this got caught in the bureaucratic turf war between the Treasury, OIA, and FinCEN, both of which are Treasury departments. There was a, a politicized aspect to this battle. And so it just kind of quietly went away. Just a couple of days ago, the Wall Street Journal broke a story that the Arizona Attorney General's office created a program called TRAC to basically just collect data on money transfers from a Western Union with the full collaboration of Western Union. 150 million money transfers are stored in this database also completely illegal, didn't go through the subpoena process. But again, we'll see if if there are any consequences for this. And so what this points to is really the incompatibility of a surveillance state with democratic governance. And this, this incompatibility 
was recognized by none other than former director of the FBI, James Comey, um, who was very upset by the fact that end-to-end -end encrypted messaging apps existed that the FBI could not access. And he explicitly said in 2015 that that's a problem with democracy. And so what we're seeing is a kind of a consolidation by the state away from democratic governance, the expectation, continued expectation of democratic governance on the part of the people. And these incommensurate point of views are, are not in dialogue with one another. So it, in the context of banking and CBDC, this consolidation of state authority is represented most clearly by the blurring of the distinction between central and commercial banks. So central banks have commitments to backstopping customer deposits. And so if central banks are put in competition with commercial banks for deposits, modeling has shown, for example, in a paper by the Philadelphia Fed, that consumers will overwhelmingly prefer the central banks and will gravitate to central banks over time. This is why most CBDC designs have this fig leaf of separation between central and commercial banks where they are wholesale CBDCs and not retail CBDCs. However, in practice, this really is nothing more than a fig leaf because... Yeah. Could, we, could we get a... Maybe yeah. Yeah, right. thank you. Because ultimately, the the retail CBDC accounts that will be managed by commercial yes. banks will still be fully subject to central bank oversight and targeted monetary policy. So $5,000 is about the median checking account balance in the United States. CBDC account caps at less than this amount would certainly be required to avoid significantly cannibalizing commercial bank deposits. This, this was already put in place by the Central Bank of the Bahamas in their sand dollar initiative. The verified CBDC accounts are capped at $5,000 annual balance and non-identity verified accounts are capped at 500. So that's, that's quite a low amount and again raises questions about the future of commercial banking under CBDC regimes. And then finally we get to this question of whether central banks are in fact independent at all. The, the 80s and 90s were kind of the high point of central bank independence globally. But since the, that time, and particularly since the, the great financial crisis, central banks' implicit mandate to maintain economic stability has resulted in more direct political control over its functions. So things like bailouts, targeted monetary policy, so the different distributional impacts of monetary policy, the pressure on central banks to be more transparent about their goals and objectives. All of that introduces, these are all political dimensions of central banking. And in fact, the stability of the financial system as a whole is often at odds with the imperative to maintain price stability or control inflation, which is another mandate of central banks. And so how that trade-off is made is a political decision. So I wanna end with this metaphor of the airport as a paradigm for the, the emerging bank state. The airport is a quintessential border institution. As the world has internationalized and state capacity has grown, the, this difference between inside and outside, local and foreign, has collapsed into a permanent state of familiar otherness, a vigilant containment that is not hospitality and never becomes solidarity. The airport is a space of both law and lawlessness in which the distinction between those two 
is often erased. And so here I want to bring in philosopher Giorgio Agamben, who has theorized extensively the lawless law that characterizes the state of exception. The state of exception is, you can think of it as akin to the Roman justicium, which was generally proclaimed during the state of tumultus, when the Roman state was threatened from either without or within. The, the justicium was the suspension of law that enabled the Roman state to raise an army and confront whatever the threat was. This, so this was a zone of anime, in the words of Agamben, in which all legal determinations are deactivated. And it also functions as a threshold of indeterminacy between democracy and absolutism and a threshold of indifference between anime and law. In other words, if the law encompasses everything or nothing, then the distinction between law and lawlessness is meaningless. And so why Bitcoin? It is virtually impossible to reverse the momentum of state consolidation of power as such. So the state will not constrain itself. The only long-term checks on state power emerge from a civil society whose power is significant enough that the state fears it. This is the thesis of Daron Achimoglu and James Robinson, two historians, one at MIT, one at the University of Chicago, in their book, The Narrow Corridor. They, they suggest that the only thing that preserves liberty in the long run is something called the Red Queen effect. And that is an analogy taken from Alice in Wonderland, where Alice races the Red Queen. And the Red Queen represents the state, Alice represents society, and this constant race, the maintaining of parity and the capacities between state and society is what ensures liberty. So the universalization of end-to-end -end encryption and a direct ownership model of censorship-resistant digital assets, in this case, in the case of the bank state, that is what reasserts civil society's power in, in the face of, of that growing state consolidation of power. And so I would suggest here that Bitcoin's most important property is precisely its statelessness and its censorship resistance. It mirrors physical cash in that it is a bare asset that can be exchanged directly without identity verification. It is a guarantor of individual liberties at the protocol level. There is no one party or set of parties that controls the protocol. It's a complex set of game theoretic conditions that ensure that incentives remain appropriately distributed and balanced. Coin for this reason enables direct peer-to-peer -peer transacting using quote-unquote self-hosted wallets, basically a digital version of the wallet you carry around in your pocket. And it serves as a monetary DMZ or demilitarized zone for states. So it represents a non-political alternative to the U.S.-controlled and the BRICS-controlled financial systems. And central to this, to this liberatory potential of Bitcoin is the fact that it represents a, a move away from the account model of digital asset custody. So anytime we're, we're talking about a third-party trusted custodian, we're talking about a centralized implementation of public key infrastructure in which some custodian holds the private keys that, the, that determine ownership of an asset. Bitcoin is an implementation of decentralized PKI, meaning it represents a direct model of digital asset custody. The asset is custodied by the end user who owns their private keys and therefore can operate in a self-sovereign manner.
And so this is critical. Bitcoin has no customers. That is why there cannot be AML KYC requirements for the use of Bitcoin. It is a tool. Tools create inclusion as people freely adopt them, not based on top-down coercion. And so ultimately the takeaway here is that liberty is a bottom-up process. And as the states move forward with implementing CBDCs, having a liberty-oriented alternative like Bitcoin will be key to ensuring that a space for freedom continues to exist. Uh, Natalie, that was fantastic. I just want to give the mic back to Tomaso for a couple of minutes because he has to leave. And then we circle back to Chris if there are any other questions. Tomaso, you still there? I'm here. Yes. I'm sorry, I wanted to cut you off, but I think it was important to at least go ahead. I thought we were going until 1.15, so I actually have another meeting. Where we were, but then we, we for, for, we brought to the fore some of the discussions so that, yeah, it's lived a, a little bit. But if you have something to add, I think you had a perspective on the fund. If you have a couple more minutes. I, I, had, I had actually prepared a, a whole discussion um, of, of Gencat, some of the Gencatlos, Chris, Chris's sorry, book. But I, I guess one last question to leave with Chris, and of course, one of the areas on which we're working is who will provide the money that we will use in this new digitalized world. There, there are various options. There is, of course, the unbacked crypto asset, which we would argue is not money, does not have a stable store of value. There is the possibility of very well-regulated stable coins. And I agree with you. I don't like the word stable coin either. It's a catch-all. But we might imagine that with sufficiently clear regulation, we have some sort of coin that is denominated in a monetary unit of account and can be redeemed at par in any state of the world upon demand. I'm not sure what the business model will be to issue that type of coin, but it is a possibility. And then, of course, there is the possibility that commercial banks get involved and digitalize their deposits, which could then be transferred in on a blockchain or on some sort of ledger. And there are all sorts of questions about how that might be developed, whether the digital version of commercial bank deposits could be transferred to people who are not customers of the issuing commercial bank, or whether you need some sort of other arrangements for interoperability, and whether that arrangement might be CBDC, so a digital version of central bank reserves that acts both as an instrument, monetary instrument to settle transactions across different issuers and as infrastructure to ensure interoperability, just as... Grant, you there? <clears throat> I'm here. It looks like David dropped off. Apologies. But I know we're supposed to wrap up right around now anyway. Is that um, what do you want to keep going? It and sounds like they're going to keep going for a little bit. Or yeah. do you want us yeah, to no, wrap up here? No, I, I can keep going for a little bit. And so awesome. perhaps until now, we've become enamored with the idea of paying for coffee with digital money. Because we're somewhere, we're all consumers. We all pay for coffee in the morning. But that is more the tail wagging of the dog, whereas, in fact, if digital assets really were to take off, they would require digital money for settlement. That would be the dog wagging of the tail again, just given the volumes and the use cases. We could, of course, go beyond and think about the role of CBDC in that world, the role of CBDC as both monetary instrument and infrastructure to allow for interoperability not just between the issuers of money, but also between issuers of money and issuers 
of digital assets. And that, of course, is the world that I'd love to debate with you. Unfortunately, I know we're out of time, but I just wanted to put those ideas on the table. And I do hope to, to meet you soon and to continue the discussion. It's been fascinating. Thank you very much. And I'll uh, see you soon. Thank you, Tommaso. Those questions and food for thought of the role. So I think I can pass it back to Chris for a moment. I mean, my own take from the whole discussion is that there's this revolution. It's, it's going to happen willy-nilly, and a lot of that has already happened. I mean, you have been a regulator of these markets, so these things are old to some extent, and even if people haven't heard about them. But in one thing is the future of digital money, which you have, and I think Natalie also explained, there's a lot of merits, and I think that some of that. And the other is the issue of public digital money, and especially monopolistic digital money with all this privacy. So I, I don't know, I know in your book you sort of start with a, with a word where it's really the peer-to-peer -peer concept where this, this freedom is unleashed, the internet of value. But, but then it seems a different philosophy from the CBDC. So if you, if you want to say a few words about that and what Tommaso, his last thoughts about the role of the intermediary, that would be really, I think, useful. Thank, thank you, Nicoletta. And I want to respond to some of those thoughts of yours and Tommaso, but with reference to, to Natalie's, I think, excellent presentation, much of which I very much agree with. The concern about privacy ultimately, is, it, to me, is the fight for the future of money. This could, this, the move to a digital architecture of, of value, I think can either be the sunsetting of, of our fundamental freedoms as a free people, or hopefully a new beginning. And why do I say that? When you think about our constitutional rights, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion, freedom of privacy in our own person in the Fourth Amendment. In, in a free market economy, what are those freedoms other than how we spend our money, right? We speech in the media we consume, in, in, the, in, the, in the utterances we make on Twitter and, and, on, and on Facebook. We assemble by organizations that we pay dues to, right? We, we exercise our freedom of religion or not religion by organizations we belong to. And so if, if the, the degree of, we already have of, of surveillance and censorship is expanded in a new digital era, then we've effectively lost those freedoms. There'll be freedoms in name, name only. But I actually think, and I think Natalie touched upon this itself, there is this technology, and she points to Bitcoin, and certainly I think uh, Bitcoin has censorship resistance built into it, has privacy protection built into it. It, it. it gives us a vision of how to use this digital technology as a way to stop the trend we're on and reverse it. Now, I want to point out something. There's many, in, many out there who say CBDC bad private operated digital money good. Well, what we're seeing in the Twitter files proves that just because you outsource the public square to a private actor, your, your privacy may be more infringed, right? Government will lean on private actors and you can see a, a bad future where government says, okay, we won't do CBDC, we'll allow private actors to operate stable coins and then we'll tell them what to censor and what to surveil. We'll tell them you can't use that stable coin to fund Planned Parenthood if it's a right-wing government, or you can't use it to fund right to life if you're a left-wing government, or you can't buy ammunition, so on and so forth. 
And those private actors aren't governed by the First Amendment. So one of the arguments for CBDC, if we get it privacy right, is at least the government is subject to, per to constitutional protections. The private sector is not. Now, I will tell you that I'm very much supportive of a world that we might go to where Bitcoin could be money for all the reasons Natalie says. But I would tell you, having spent five years in Washington and a lifetime in, in a post pre and post 9-11 world, I'm not sure governments are moving away from CBDs or will give that up, okay? I, I, my guess is within 15 years, a third of the globe, as I said before, will be using China's digital currency. My guess is the Eurozone will be using a digital euro currency. And my guess is the United States will deploy a CBDC, whether we like it or not, whatever argument we have. And so we at the Digital Dollar Project have thought, look, you can have an outside game or an inside game. Our goal is to get in front of it and to make sure that privacy is central to the public's discussion of a CBDC so that when policymakers take up authorizing it, privacy is front and center. I'll get one more point, and then I'm sure Natalie's got some thoughts, and I don't want to monopolize the conversation. You've already given me a lot of time, and I'm grateful for it. But I'll say one other thing. Last week, I spent a few days on Capitol Hill with some of the senior policymakers and the new House leadership, but on the other side of the aisle as well. And they're all talking about stablecoin legislation. And I asked them, what privacy provisions are you putting in the new stablecoin legislation? And uniformly, the answer was, we haven't thought about that. I said, are you kidding me? You're going to allow operators to operate stable coins, but you're, you're going to allow them to take all that data. You're going to allow them to be told by government what the stable coin can be used for. You haven't thought about privacy. We, the people, have not made privacy front and center in this new digital form of money. And that's what we're trying to do with the Digital Dollar Project. And I think that's got to be part of every conversation. A, a, a good future would, and, and, and probably a likely one, would be one where there are CBDCs, because I think that's going to happen, no matter how much we may not want it to happen. But also where Bitcoin is not suppressed, where Bitcoin exists, where stablecoin operators are required to, to ensure privacy and, and lack of censorship, and where a CBDC is subject to the First Amendment. And the only way we get to that world is by making privacy front and center in every one of these conversations. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. I think we're on the same page then there. I, I would like to give it back to Natalie for a moment. I mean, we've never gone overboard with time, but I think this is so. We still have 100 people, and, but I, I'm sure people have to go. So we're going to spend another few minutes and then close off because this is marvelous. I could stay here all day, but we have a, a promise in closing on time. So Natalie, do you have a few words to say? Yeah, I do. I, I don't think there is any private implementation of a CBDC. I just, I don't think it's possible. I think it's already been precluded. The, the weaponization of the global banking system and the financial system as a instrument of not just identity verification, but consistent surveillance, that is already a fait accompli. That is done. And a CBDC will not depart from the assumptions underlying the existing financial system, which is also one of the reasons that it's superfluous as an initiative. 
like the global banking system is already fully digital. It's fully surveilled. The, the main benefits of a CBDC at this point for the state are getting down to that granular programmability of token by token, individual by individual transacting. And so I, I would suggest CBDCs are a fully lost cause. They likely will be implemented in many countries against the will of the people, often as a surprise. Like people will hear about them for the first time when a, C, a CBDC account is created for them um, at their bank and then used to, say, implement a negative 2% interest rate to recover some of the sovereign debt burden of that bank. And so people will begin flocking to Bitcoin not because they love Bitcoin, but simply because it will be the only non-state, self-sovereign alternative out there. Well, we'll have to live this through and see it. And Chris is working on this topic. So I think Natalie is working on this topic. And of course, the IMF is working on this topic. I hope you can, first of all, I need to thank immensely Chris for joining us and sharing the insights of his book and his experience and the, the very deep knowledge about these topics and for putting himself into this, this, this fight, right? Gloves off. And Natalie for a very important, I think, perspective of the risks and, and of the need of awakening of the society and the demand we need to ask to regulators and, and state operators. And Tommaso for, of course, his, his intelligent, insightful questions. Please share the recording with anybody because the debate is has to continue. If I can, I'll try to copy the chat and, and send this to some of the speakers in case I have time to, to get back to some of these questions. But also, there's going to be raffled 100 copies of the, of the book. So you'll be contacted by the Library of the IMF with a, with a free book if you were among the first 100 participants. And uh, thanks. Thanks to all a lot. And we're here. I think we, we have our eyes open and we're going to all contribute to the debate if we engage in the debate. And I think today maybe it was a primer for many, maybe it wasn't. But glad to Chris and to Natalie for the work and to Mazo who's gone. Thank you so much. Goodbye. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Thank Bye. you. <clears throat> all right. Well, that was cool. Wow. Yeah, really quick, Chris, if you have to drop, if, if Bitcoin Mag can no longer host, I can stay on as co-host. So just let me know if that's going to be an issue. But I, I think we'll stick around for a few minutes and kind of debrief on the conversation. And we're going to try to see if Natalie can join us as yeah, well. Yeah, I just I just texted her. I was worried they weren't going to give her a chance to respond. They, uh, they kind of build this as a debate and then didn't give her the mic until an hour in. But I, I don't know about you guys in the audience, but I, I thought Natalie's presentation was phenomenal. No, yeah. I, I, yeah, I thought the presentation was really good. Grant and David, I can I can hang on if, if you want. I think it's important. I'm definitely willing to, to stay here. But if you guys lead the conversation, that'd be great. And hopefully Natalie can join us. Yeah. Could you make me co-host again or can you only have one? Yep. No, I can make you co-host right now. Sweet. Awesome. Yeah. If anybody, yeah, any of our fellows want to come join, debrief on the conversation, request to speak. But I think we can kind of start at the top. Just a quick summary for those of you who missed it. It was, again, billed as a, a debate, a discussion between Jay, Chris, Giancarlo, who's the former CFTC chairman, now writing books on crypto, calls himself the, the crypto dad, right? There was a member of the IMF who asked some questions that wasn't necessarily part of the kind of official debate. And then there's a BPI fellow, Natalie Smolensky, who offered the kind of anti-CBDC pro-Bitcoin argument in this debate. I'll start with kind of the first thing that I thought was interesting is that I don't know about you all, but like if you listen to Jay, Chris, Giancarlo, like 
he spoke for 45 minutes and a lot of the conversation actually wasn't framed around central bank digital currencies. And Natalie, I, I see you're on here. And so I'm, I'm kind of curious to your thoughts, like hearing his presentation and, and hearing maybe what you thought the conversation was going to be about versus the way it actually went. Did it kind of meet your expectations? Because from my perspective, it seemed a little bit more broad and about like tokens and digital networks rather than maybe CBDC specifically. Hey, everyone. Yeah, it didn't surprise me because I had read Chairman Giancarlo's book before before that presentation. And really, he's he's always recapping his biography. So it was it was mostly about, I would suggest, Chris Giancarlo. I wanted to keep the focus very clearly on the need to separate bank from state and the fact that Bitcoin is the only project doing that. Yeah, Natalie, I thought your 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 sort of last point as well was just such a, a a sort of like climactic way to end. Just sort of, and I was I don't know if you were able to see his face, but I was like watching him sort of just like shift in his chair when you kind of just said like there will not be a, an acceptably private implementation of a CBDC. Uh, and I wish that conversation could have have gone on longer. And I'm sure you do as well. Are there any points that you wanted to make on that call that you didn't get around to making? No, I said everything I needed to say. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. And yeah, we're going to get a recording of that presentation because if you guys were just listening in the spaces, you didn't get to see Natalie's excellent PowerPoint skills in action as well. So when we get that recording, we'll put it on the Bitcoin Policy Institute YouTube so that we can Go watch Natalie own the IMF in, in perpetuity. <laughs> yeah, and I'll share my slides with you in the next few minutes. What What do you think of Chairman Giancarlo's kind of broad acceptance of this space, but maybe lack of specificity with regard to Bitcoin, right? We hear that a lot. Yeah. He talked a lot about how blockchain could have stopped us from the 08 crisis, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you really leaned into a lot of the more fundamental kind of political theory that's led you to embrace Bitcoin. So could you talk a little bit about that? I don't know. You can call it a, a tension, but maybe a slight disagreement there. Yeah. So I think, I think Giancarlo's point at the very beginning where he suggests that the 08 crisis could have been averted if only the regulators had had full transparency into the ledgers of major U.S. financial institutions. I mean, that's that's kind of crazy balls, if, if you think about it. I mean, the, the idea that any actor could have full visibility into the ledgers of, like, an individual person, let alone financial institutions that operate at the scale these institutions do. I mean, that that is literally a, a foundational presupposition of central planning. I mean, the, the notion that a regulator could, in fact, have perfect information and based on that perfect information could sort of direct the economy. That is completely at odds with the notion of the, the market itself as an informational system. And so I think, I think what's happening is that in the United States, we have this tradition of political liberty um, that includes the freedom to transact, that many are genuinely and sincerely committed to. 
but they haven't examined what that implies for how economic or how markets are constructed and governed. There's, there's a, a simultaneous assumption that many of them have that, that more perfect information and more perfect control on the part of regulators somehow perfects markets. And, and so this is why the perspective of Chairman Giancarlo is self-contradictory. Why, why they can say things like, we want a CBDC, but we want it to be a privacy coin. Because that there is a simultaneous both commitment to individual liberty and total trust in the institutions of the state. Well, those are those are incommensurates and they come into conflict from from the beginning. And and this is why there's so much incoherence in in our political system today and, and in even our our just public discourse. We don't have a clear political theory that we're all, and I mean Americans, operating from. And this is why the, the Texas Bitcoin Foundation is so focused on political economy, because we actually need to revisit some of these foundational texts of economic theory and, and begin thinking about how the information revolution that, that we've been living through since the advent of computation, how, how does that change the way that markets operate. And, and I don't think our existing Enlightenment era institutions, political institutions can really do anything other than validate power in an ever growing and ever more unaccountable state. So I've got a question for you, Natalie. You mentioned the, the sort of freedom to transact and it's something that Bitcoiners talk about a, a lot and is like sort of chief of mind for people that are seriously kind of interrogating these issues. I'm curious to hear your perspective on the relationship between a, a liberal political economy and the freedom to transact. Like it's, it's obviously, it's not in the constitution. There's no document that I'm aware of that explicitly states that we have this like freedom to, to transact, but nonetheless, it's, it's a sort of self-evident that the ability to transact is, a foundational sort of necessary condition for a, a liberal political project broadly. So could you maybe just talk for a minute about how you see those those concepts like relating and like why specifically the freedom to transact is a requisite sort of freedom for a, a liberal political economy? Sure. Yeah. So when we talk about transacting, we're talking about two things, property and association. So in in the history of liberal political theory, the kind of or right or the, the the fundamental right that spawns discussion and commitment to all of the other rights in in that genealogy of political theory is the right to property. And this this was a reaction against a set of mercantilist uh, political economic presuppositions about what the commonwealth meant and who economic activity was designed to benefit. Is it designed to benefit the crown, the the state, or is it designed to benefit the individual? And so the earliest articulation of a separation of individual from state happened in the context of property rights. Now, if you have property, ostensibly, you also have the freedom to dispose of that property 
as you choose. And so the the ability to do what you will with your own property is is presupposed if you have a right to said property. But transacting is is always a relation. You're transacting with someone else. And so that is a form of association. And so the freedom of association of people to choose who they align with and to do things together in common projects that don't have to seek the sanction of the state. That is also a key element of the liberal political order. And so when when we talk about freedom to transact, that's we're really talking about these two f- more fundamental rights. I see Zach, you have your hand up. What's up, Zach? Hey, how's it going? Yeah, I just wanted to, first of all, say that Natalie totally smashed it. That was that was awesome. And then to briefly comment on the last two topics, I think first, like the the idea that blockchain as a whole would have stopped what happened in 2008 is, of course, ridiculous and belied by a lot of the stuff we saw in the last year. Right. A lot of the balance sheet Mm -hmm. of the Terra Luna ecosystem was totally publicly available. A lot of the assets were digital assets and that imploded in spectacular fashion. Right. So it's not crypto is not going to get us out of this. It's responsible finance. And I also think that like, we really should stake out a position that the US Constitution protects not only the right to transact, but the right to transact privately. And I think you can find support for that. Now, as you said, in the First Amendment with your freedom of association, some payments can be speech, so we can find it there. The Fourth Amendment, right, you could have a negative right against an Mm -hmm. arbitrary seizure by the government in terms of limiting your right right to transact. I think the Tenth Amendment can be helpful here, the Fifth Amendment right to due process. And so I think this is a critically important issue. And I think there's actually pretty good constitutional case law for transacting privately. There's a famous case about donors to Planned Parenthood, the the list being disclosed, and that that was a First Amendment violation Mm -hmm. to to force the state to turn over that list. And so I, I totally think we should fight these battles in the courts when necessary. Yeah. Thank you. Another point you made, Natalie, that they never responded to and I thought was was important was you sort of mentioning how like sort of removed from civil society the process of CBDC scheming and deliberation has been. And you describe what the reality might be for the overwhelming majority of of people who wind up being sort of forced to use a CBDC which is that they'll wake up one morning and their CBDC account will exist. They'll have never heard of the topic of CBDCs before. It will just be a thing that enters into their life without any sort of deliberation or attention on the part of the public. And I know you messaged me a couple days ago saying that we should put out a script for people to call their elected officials and tell them that they are opposed to the U.S. rollout of a CBDC. Do you want to like maybe tease out some of those like simple bullet point arguments? I know we need to make this mm-hmm. and publish it, but for the people listening now, what do you think those kind of key points are that if people feel inclined to counteract that that sort of trend that you're observing and you know bring accountability to their lawmakers, if people want to get involved in this debate, what, what do you think the most sort of like distinct distillation of the of, of the critique is? Yeah. No, I mean, the the talking point is I as an American citizen, I reject financial surveillance. Period. End of sentence. CBDC is just the most accelerated form of financial surveillance. But the existing digital 
dollar system, the existing digital banking system is already fully surveilled. And so the the reality is, I mean, we've we've been kind of sleeping on this. And even Giancarlo points out, I I quoted him from his book that since 9/11, the 4th Amendment has in effect been suspended. Every account-based financial transaction is fully surveilled. And these financial agencies, intelligence agencies, police agencies, federal, state, municipal, they all share information with each other. There there is no legal framework because they don't require a legal framework. And and so like most Americans are completely unaware, hey, remember that Prism program that Edward Snowden risked his life to tell us all about. Well, that was like quietly reauthorized in 2012, in 2018. It's it's set to expire this year, but I'm sure it'll be reauthorized by Congress again. And so this is the problem is is we have we have first of all leaders of intelligence agencies who don't disclose things to Congress and then lie to Congress when they're explicitly asked. We have American people who don't know about this issue and who aren't pushing back from a electoral standpoint, civil society standpoint. And we have a state that is enamored with the logic of its own expansion. And so that is a toxic cocktail. And really the the only effective remedy is building out alternative infrastructures like Bitcoin that people can easily opt into because everything else is virtually an impossible task at this point. Well, I know Grant wants to, you said we wanted to wrap this space up in a few minutes, but before, before tossing it back to maybe Natalie for, for closing thoughts, uh, I just want to say how proud I am of, of, of you and you know, the debate that you just did. It's not, it's not every day that a Bitcoiner gets invited to debate the IMF on CBDCs. And I think I speak for a lot of people in the audience when I say that I was just blown away by your poise, your preparation, and your ability to reject CBDCs and, and pitch Bitcoin to this particular audience. It's just a pleasure working with you. And I'm, I'm so glad you got the chance to do this. Thank you so much. That really means a lot to me. Thanks, David. And Natalie, you crushed it. Echo everything David said. We're, we're right up against time. I, I, this has gone on, I mean, a lot longer than we, we thought it would. We've got some people from the audience like requesting to come up. Chris, do you think we should just, we should just wrap this up or take a couple questions? No, let, uh, let's, let, I'm all for taking questions. Let's keep it going. <laughs> yeah, go. I'm good. Natalie, do you have a few minutes? Yeah, I do. Awesome. All right, well... We'll take a few. I just let up Alex Kaufman, who requested to speak. Perfect. So, Alex, you go first. Grant, thank you so much. I just have a a really quick question. I just would like to know when Natalie is announcing her uh, her run for president. (laughs) That is a great question. I don't know. I don't know. But I'll keep you posted. Thank you. Thank you. It was fantastic. Waiting for the announcement. Great job. Thanks so much, Alex. William. Yeah, thanks for, for letting me jump in shortly. Natalie, this is another for you. So I worked with Chainalysis over the last almost two years on our national security team and covered a lot of the DOD intelligence side of things. So everything that you're chatting about, about CBDCs and stuff, is there a healthy medium where 
obviously you were you were making the argument kind of against them, especially as it pertains to kind of the surveillance state and and whatnot. And I obviously focus on the national security side and think, or at least in my opinion, there is a little bit of a need for um, monitoring some some of these transactions. Worked with projects evolving around the Lazarus Group, narco trafficking, human rights trafficking, stuff like that. So when you're on that side of things, you definitely do see quite a bit of the need for it. But do you think there's ever going to be a healthy mm-hmm. medium of both kind of the surveillance state existing with anonymity or at least pseudo anonymity within the blockchain? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think the the healthy medium is outlined in the constitution, right? So surveillance is warranted if there is probable cause of a crime. But even when there is probable cause of a crime, the burden of proof is on the state. And the the state has to go through a set of procedural obstacles, such as seeking a warrant or seeking a subpoena, that authorize it to collect information in a strictly delimited manner. And so from my point of view, these information technologies have basically obviated all of those constitutional protections. Like there is there is no more burden of proof on the state. Now the burden of proof is on the individual to constantly prove that they're not criminals. That is fundamentally at odds with any liberal political order. Well said, and I'm definitely going to have to check out your your debate with the IMF. It's all super interesting, and obviously such a, a new technology and, and whatnot. And with the fallout of FTX, Celsius, a number of the other exchanges and whatnot, it's going to be obviously super important to get policy in line and just regulations in general so far behind it, but there's such a fine line between <laughs> what you're mentioning, right, on the, the responsibility of the state to... A, ensure that people aren't getting screwed over, the consumer is getting screwed over, but also people's privacy being maintained. So thanks. Yep, absolutely. Thanks, thanks William. Question, William. Let's toss it over to Lola Leeds. This is probably going to be our last question, by the way. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. I have a question, and if I understood it correctly, Natalie, you said that private CBDCs can exist. And yet the argument was brought up that privately issued currencies can be more dangerous regarding surveillance. So what I'm wondering is what is BPI's stance on stable coins and the lack of privacy in Bitcoin in particular, and whether BPI endorses privacy technology to anonymize Bitcoin transactions, and if so, to what degree? Yeah, so I'm I can't speak on behalf of BPI as an entity, but I can speak on my own behalf. Obviously, there are important and serious privacy issues in the way that Bitcoin is is currently architected and used. And there are a lot of very smart people working on how to make coin transacting more private. That is probably the most important civil rights issue of our time. I'm not a software engineer, so I... I don't know too much about the extent of the modifications and and projects that are currently underway other than that they are and that they are absolutely critical. Yeah, I can add some some color as well from the <clears throat> I guess more of the the BPI perspective and Lola asked like a couple of questions but I think to sort of respond to all of them to, to, like, together, our, our sort of 
advocacy around Bitcoin is not conditional on Bitcoin's traceability or its like current state of privacy. We're committed to the belief that people have the right to transact anonymously. And like Natalie mentioned, the being the burden of the state to prove that crime has occurred following or as a result of an anonymous transaction and then utilizing the civil society like law enforcement and courts to prosecute that crime after the fact. So if I understood your question correctly, yeah, we're committed to sort of advocating for and producing research that explains the benefits of people's ability to transact anonymously. And if Bitcoin gets more private in the future, our support for Bitcoin won't change. And last thing, I don't have a tweet to pull up here, but we are actually one of the signatories on a an open letter to Congress specifically regarding privacy and privacy preserving technologies that was released by Fight for the Future about a week ago. So if you check out Fight for the Future and their letter to Congress, you'll see our name there. That's awesome. Thank you. Great. All right. Any other, I guess we don't, yeah, I think we probably need to, to wrap up here in a second. Yeah. It's been, been over two hours. Thank you so much for everybody sticking with us. This has been awesome. Natalie, you crushed it. Thank you so much for representing BPI and, and really just doing such an excellent job in spite of the, the, time, <laughs> the time constraints, we'll say that. So Natalie, any last words? No, just thank you guys for being you, for actually building the alternatives and not waiting for permission. The future is bright because of you. Thank you. And thank you so much to Bitcoin Magazine for hosting. Thank you, Chris, for staying on. You rock. This is awesome. Hope to do it again soon. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. yeah, thanks, guys. Class, last closing remarks. Thank you, Natalie, for your talk. It was awesome. Thanks for joining us afterwards. Thank you, Grant and David, for, for doing this and what you do. We full, fully support you guys. There's an easy way for everyone in the audience to support them as well. If you go to b.tc forward slash conference and use the promo code Bitcoin policy, all one word. You can get tickets to Bitcoin Miami with a discount. So for Bitcoin 2023 in this May, you can listen to talks like this. We're really looking forward to it. As well as Natalie, you got a bunch of praise from the Boston Coin Meetup. They had a talk with Jason Lowry a couple weeks ago. And the organizer of the event was praising the Orange Party issue, specifically your article in it, Natalie. So awesome job on that. Love your work and love what you guys are doing. So that's pretty much it for a Bitcoin magazine. We'll hopefully we'll do this soon. Grant, we're planning to do this next Wednesday. Is that correct? With sure. Hines, I think. Yes, sir. All right. Sounds good. So you'll see us next Wednesday at 12 p.m. Eastern. Have a good one, everyone, and talk to you guys soon. My fellow plebs, come celebrate Bitcoin winner in Miami at Bitcoin 2023. The largest Bitcoin conference in the world returns to Miami from Miami 18th to the 20th. Head on over to b.tc forward slash conference to get your tickets today. Use promo code BMLive to get 10% off your tickets before prices go up. Magazine time, y'all. Bitcoin is for everyone, lefties, righties, and the rejectors of the false dichotomy alike. And that is why the newest Bitcoin magazine print edition is called the Orange Party Issue. It features articles by President Naib Bukele, Jeff Dice, Natalie Smolinski, Eric Kaysen, Max Kaiser, and Jimmy Song. Get your copy from the local Barnes & Noble bookstore or from the Bitcoin Magazine store at bitcoinmagazine.com and use promo code BMLIVE to get 10% off your annual subscription today.
plebs. If you're like me and want to gain a deeper understanding of what's going on within the Bitcoin market and broader macro environment, then you need to subscribe to Bitcoin Magazine Pro today. There's a free and a paid version of this daily newsletter where our market analysts Dylan LeClaire, Dr. Jeff Ross, and Sam Rule break down what's going on in the market so you don't have to. Subscribe today at BitcoinMagazinePro.com.